Playback on RTE Radio 1, sponsored by FexcoCurrency.com. Your route to great rates on your travel money at participating credit unions. Good morning. Northern Ireland Protocol. So passe. Welcome to... The Windsor Framework. A good deal? Many thought so. Not least, this breathlessly excited UK Prime Minister. Northern Ireland is in the unbelievably special position, unique position in the entire world, European continent, in having privileged access, not just to the UK home market, which is enormous, fifth biggest in the world, but also the European Union single market. Nobody else has that. No one. Only you guys, only here. That's like the world's most exciting economic zone. Rishi Sunak, or Dear Rishi, as Ursula von der Leyen phrased it. So, the world's most exciting economic zone, the bar for which I suspect is low. But what, Claire wondered, did EU Commissioner Moraith McGuinness make of it? He's extolling the virtues there of something that the UK had all along until 2016. He's extolling the virtues that Northern Ireland, because of the unique situation and relationships between these islands, needed a solution to the problems of Brexit mm. by allowing Northern Ireland to stay in the single market. I know you're I mean, being Northern... careful now, but you have to see the irony in what he's saying there. Well, I mean, I would quote him back. I mean, I think it is true that Northern Ireland are very uni- in a very unique situation. Mm. They have on access But it's exactly what the whole of the UK had the European single market. Yeah, I mean, it it's is exactly true. But, but, but there is a crucial difference, Claire. Um, And it is that Northern Ireland is no longer part of the European Union. Mm -hmm. It is part of the single market and it is the market access which is really important. But you you take my point. The UK made this decision to take themselves out of this position which he is now saying is the best in the world but we decided to to leave. Well that's a decision that the United Kingdom took and it's interesting that if you look at the vote in, in Northern Ireland it was to stay. Clearly overall the United Kingdom has left and Northern Ireland has left. But I think that, you know, there was mature politics around the reality that the the, the Brexit effect, a hard Brexit, was something we could not countenance on the Mm. island of Ireland for many, many good reasons. And indeed, it was interesting because I've said it often myself with my agriculture background that the dairy industry on the island of Ireland is all island. And the Prime Minister referenced the realities for dairy farmers and processing on this island. What struck me, and I think we should mark it and acknowledge it, is that his, his, his attention to detail of what this agreement means was quite something. He was very engaged in the actual process. And one of the biggest Very diplomatic. But as a reminder of where we have been, Morning Ireland brought us this. Brexit, Northern Ireland. How to leave the EU but not leave a border on the island of Ireland. Theresa May couldn't solve it. The House has spoken and the government will listen. It is clear that the House does not support this deal. Boris Johnson thought he had solved it. We have a plan to do it. We have a deal that is ready to go. It is oven ready. Whack it in. Gas mark for I mean, I'm not a great cook, but you know what I mean. It's that. He then changed his mind. I don't think that the interpretation or application of the protocol is, is sensible or pragmatic. Uh, there are all kinds of impediments being constructed and we need to sort it out. Now Rishi Sunak thinks he has made history. I'm pleased to report that we have now made a decisive breakthrough. And after so many years, one person who fervently hopes that this deal will stick was Northern Ireland Minister Steve Baker. 
Seven years of this cost me my mental health. The beard, the jewellery is about me, my recovery. In November 21, I had a major mental health crisis, anxiety and depression, I couldn't go on. People couldn't tell and made a big keynote speech in the afternoon. But make no mistake, holding these tigers by the tail, Brexit, Covid recovery group, net zero scrutiny group, the tax stuff we did with Conservative Way Forward took its toll. We're all only human. And it, the way I've led rebellions, no one should have to do. And this is an important moment for me personally, because I can authentically say he's done it. Claire got the view of Deirdre Heenan, Professor of Social Policy at Ulster University. Deirdre, what did you think when you heard that? Well, it's extraordinary, isn't it? I suppose when I listen to Steve Baker now, I think, will the real Steve Baker please stand up? Because he flip-flops all over the place. Remember, this was the self-styled hard man of Brexit. This is a man that pushed and threatened to get the hard Brexit. And we shouldn't forget that because a lot of this turmoil has been because we rejected the softer options. Although the human side of you, on the other hand, feels that when someone's talking about their mental health, having a mental health breakdown, you can't but feel some empathy for them. Then I juxtapose that with the freedoms that have been taken away from people in Northern Ireland, the freedom to work and to travel across EU countries. And I think, well, this could have been all avoided. Moving on. So what then will this new framework involve? Here is Northern Editor Vincent Kearney on Morning Ireland this green lane, uh, red lane issue whereby goods coming into Northern Ireland um, from Britain that, that stay within Northern Ireland would be subject to virtually no checks at all. Um, some estimates saying that the checks would be reduced to about 3% uh, of what they had been previously and only those goods travelling into the European single market across the border into the Republic would, would go through the red lane. Um, that's one change. Uh, you referred earlier to, uh, to, to potatoes, uh, plants and pets uh, and, and changes there as well. Well, um, previously under the, under the protocol, uh, pet owners travelling uh, between Britain and Northern Ireland would have had to have vet-issued health certificates uh, because of, of the threat of rabies, despite the fact that rabies has not been an issue on the island of Ireland for, for over 100 years. So, so that's been removed. There are also changes made on, around parcels uh, and on medicines, uh, on VAT and alcohol duty. Rishi uh, Sunak yesterday uh, appealing to the masses trying, trying to garner support, saying this would mean that any reduction in the price of a pint uh, introduced in Britain could also apply in Northern Ireland. Um, so quite a few changes there that, that if you were trying to sell this deal, um, you could do so. But if there is a disagreement, green lane, red lane, just who gets the final say? Cormac spoke to Lucy Fisher, chief political commentator at Times Radio. If there's a divergence of opinion or interpretation of how the law should be applied, who will the final arbiter be according to the, to the Windsor framework? Is that uh, set out in the, the, the framework, Lucy? Well, look, we haven't seen the details yet, but Ursula von der Leyen was clear today in the press conference that I've just left that it is essentially, uh, ultimately, the European Court of Justice that is the sole and ultimate arbiter on all EU laws. That may become a big sticking point for the DUP or indeed some of the most hardline Eurosceptics in the European Research Group. Also on the line, Sarah Creighton, lawyer and unionist commentator. There is progress here from a a unionist uh, perspective, but it's almost like saying you're a little bit pregnant. Uh, when you say that only the minimum of EU law will apply uh, in Northern Ireland, well, the EU law will apply in Northern Ireland then, and that that is likely to rankle. The law applies or it doesn't. 
Well, exactly, you know, and, and that that is Jim Allister's point. You know, if you take, if you if you on principle don't believe the EU law should apply in Northern Ireland at all, you're not going to accept a stale if you believe that any European Union law that continues to apply in Northern Ireland diminishes Northern Ireland's place in the Union. You're not going to accept the stale. But it's quite clear from other people who have much more insider knowledge from the DUP, um, Ben Lowry of the newsletter, Alison Morris, the Belfast Telegraph, it's quite clear that there are people within the DUP who do want to compromise. It is quite clear that not everybody in the party is on the same page on this. And I think really what we have to be asking is who is who is Jeffrey Donaldson listening to at the moment? And, you know, judging by the opinion polls, it, it might be difficult for the DUP to accept this deal at this point in time. Um, I don't see them preparing their base for a bit of a climb down but you know, per- personally speaking I really do hope they it. But also in place, something called the Stormont Break. Effectively this allows the UK government to veto any new EU rules to Northern Ireland if 30 members of the Stormont Assembly from two parties or more come together to sign a petition. But there are some serious caveats on this one. It can only be triggered, yes, that word, in, and I quote, the most exceptional circumstances and as a matter of last resort. So what of the reaction from unionists? Well, on Monday, just after 6pm, as the ink was drying on the framework, Bertie Ahern spoke to Sarah, who brought him this. In, in the last short while, and Nicholas Watt yep. from the BBC, BBC's Newsnight programme, is saying that he has spoken to Ian Paisley, the DUP MP. And Ian Paisley has told Nicholas Watt that the Windsor framework, I quote, does not cut the mustard. It provides no basis for the DUP to go back into government and Rishi Sunak needs to enter fresh negotiations with the EU. Uh, Nicholas Watt is reporting that Ian Paisley has dismissed that stormant break, which allows the Northern Ireland Assembly to block EU legislation if it has a lasting and big impact on Northern Ireland. Ian Paisley is saying the brake is in the boot of the car under the spare wheel and impossible to reach. Yeah, well, I've just finished reading it and maybe he should do the same. Um, it, 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 is, it is an absolute cast iron um, brake. Um, it, it couldn't be more uh, clear in, in unambiguous ambiguous language. So um, I, I'm, I'm afraid um, if, 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 he, if they want to go back and renegotiate that, they, they'll end up with something uh, inferior. Um, it's as strong as a, a break as I, I could possibly. Well, on Tuesday's Morning Ireland, this view from the DUP leader, Geoffrey Donaldson. We recognise that progress has been made across a, a number of areas. Um, there are still some concerns. We will need to engage with the government on those. Um, as to time scale, I'm not focused on any particular deadline. I want to ensure we get this right. But some of your own MPs are not willing to wait before passing judgment. Sammy Wilson doesn't think it's enough. Ian Paisley says this deal, quote, doesn't cut the mustard. Is there division within the DUP? No, there isn't. Uh, colleagues uh, will, of course, express opinions, but the DUP will take a collective decision on this. That will involve our party officers, our assembly members, our members of parliament, and ultimately perhaps even our party executive. It's important we get this right. We need to examine in detail the legal text and indeed uh, in their interviews, both Sammy Wilson and Ian Paisley have made clear that we need to examine the legal text and understand exactly what this agreement They've means. They've already made up their minds. Well, uh, as I've said, the party collectively will come to a decision on this and we'll do it when we are ready to do it and when we understand fully what the legal text, what all of these arrangements mean for the people of Northern Ireland and our ability to trade within the United Kingdom. And as for the EU, well, according to Marie McGuinness, time is a great healer. 
or are we just all a bit tired? What is the EU Commission's position if this deal is not acceptable to the DUP? What do you do? I think we believe that we've come to a place in our relationship with the United Kingdom which is so much better than it was the day after Brexit. So I don't think we believe that all will fail because I think it would not be... You couldn't go into an agreement thinking, well, what if this one doesn't work? This is very different than previous attempts. The atmosphere is very different. But if you're Sammy Wilson or if you're Ian Paisley Jr., you're saying, look what happened when we held firm. Now we still want more, so we'll continue to hold out and we'll get more. Well, I think you've, you've to broaden it beyond two individuals. Businesses in we Northern Ireland... have a lot Ireland, of support, you know, business, that in their party. But businesses in Northern Ireland were also saying this isn't working. Um, and Maros Shevkovich met and was with businesses hearing their concerns. Mm. And we believe that what's agreed now between the two parties solves those problems. Um, and it is really, as I said, and I have to stress that, we are in a very different place today in terms of our relationship. Maybe it took all this time from 2016 for us both to accept what has happened and to find a new way forward. I mean, in the area... EU Commissioner Maraith McGuinness with Clare. But what of the views of those living in Northern Ireland? On the news at one, Conor Hunt went to Larne in County Antrim. I hope they go back into power. We all need it. We all know the reasons why. But it's it's up to the guys to just to do it. So I'm, I'm naively hopeful. I mean, I personally, I'm not going to care too much about the minutia. But, you know, that's for people more knowledgeable than me. I just hope they get back into power and start doing what they're, what they're all elected to do. So that would be my hope. I'm confused. I hope they, I hope they take the deal, Donaldson. What would you like to see the politicians do now then? Getting back to work. Getting back to work. Get on with the job they're supposed to be doing. I think we do need the tournament. We need the ministers back in. Health service is suffering. Schools are suffering. Schools are having to strike to get a better pay. So I think at the end of the day, it's the NHS, the elderly and the children are suffering. And finally, for those cynics among you, back to unionist commentator Sarah Creighton. Would this be seen as window dressing in any way um, to dress up the Britishness of this deal, to replace what is called the Northern Ireland Protocol uh, to now the Windsor framework? I mean, is that likely to be viewed a little (laughs) bit as window dressing in any way? I think it might, you know, there was a lot of cynicism really from unionists in Northern Ireland when they announced that, that the King is going to meet the European Commission president. And I, I think, you know, they're, they're, they're Arning Foster had made comments earlier on Twitter that she wasn't too impressed with this. I, I think a cynic might say that they've, they've, they've gone, well, unionists like the King <laughs> will just label it the Windsor framework and sure they'll love it. But I, I think, yeah, I, I think some people will, I think, saying, well, it's not the protocol, it's the Windsor framework. I do think that is maybe a cynical attempt to try and put a spin on this. But, you know, the facts are the facts. We just have to see what's in the text. And as I said, I really, really hope to take this. Back in a bit. Welcome back. Been a contender, of course, on the waterfront symphonic suite by Leonard Bernstein. 
just one of the pieces to be played by the National Symphony Orchestra conducted by maestro Leonard Slatkin. He joined Sean on Arena and his approach to conducting is more collaborative than dictatorial. My teacher used to have a wonderful phrase. He said, conduct from what you receive. And that means when an orchestra is playing, often their collective instinct just might have a better idea of something in a piece of music than you do. And when that happens, you have this dialogue. I'm listening to them, they're listening to me, and we are collaborating and finding the commonalities between our ways of thought. So hopefully we produce a result that's part me and part the orchestra and comes together as something individual and unique. So that blows us out of the water, this whole idea of the the ego of the conductor. Well, that's changed a lot in the last 25, 30 years. We used to have autocrats, people who literally could Mm. sack you then and there. It was Mm. Fritz Reiner, the great Hungarian conductor. My father used to tell a story when he was in the Curtis Institute of Music of Reiner adding a double bass part to a work of Beethoven that didn't have one. And Reiner systematically went through each player to play a passage alone in the double bass section, didn't like and said, out. And he wound up dismissing the entire bass section. Well, you couldn't do that, anything like that today. You would think not. And as you might guess, this film came up. So recently, of course, people are talking about this film, Tar. Tar, of course. And my basic feeling here is not about the film itself. It's the idea that her character is something we would have seen 40 to 50 years ago. An autocratic conductor basically wanting and getting everything she wanted through the sheer ego of her Mm. personality. And maybe that's a dichotomy in the film because it... She couldn't exist that way today as portrayed in the film, but she could have existed 40, 50 years ago if there had been more women conductors at the time. And staying with Tara Slatkin did have a very interesting take on the contemporary and sometimes contentious discussions around the art and the morality and ethics of the artist. Bach is the particular one that's used in this case. You know, can you play the music of Bach because he was a white superior male back in the time and had fathered loads of children around the place, you know, and that he was, he he is not the best model for people. And can you play retrospectively, how do you fit that into the 21st century? A lot depends on whether or not you believe that any composer, any playwright, any screenwriter, anybody who creates something, whether or not their background and elements in their personal life affect the end product. So when we hear Bach, I don't think about the children. I don't think about what he was doing at the time. I'm just going, does this music touch me? And I don't care what his background is. So for me personally, It is a matter of just separating out to me if it touches me. And if it Mm. does, then the other stories are incidental. Whether you like the composer or not is is a kind of, or the way he or she conducts themselves. To me anyway, not to everybody. And and you accept that others think differently. Sean on Arena. But Ryan on World Book Day, no less, was not taking such an, on the one hand, on the other hand, approach the minefield of what to do 
with the children on World Book Day because uh, you are very likely to cause offence with whatever you put because <laughs> everything, everything you wear or whatever costume uh, is liable to be cancelled, sadly. Um, they're saying that if you wear, if you go as Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling, can't do that. If you go as anything by David Williams, uh, he was inappropriate uh, along the, back in his day in Little Britain, if you believe in that. Uh, so you can't do that. If you go as Nina Blight, I don't even say Enid or Gnid, Forget about that. That's not going to happen. And if you want to go as, who else is cancelled? Uh, anything by Roald Dahl, of course. They're all gone. Of the obvious one. I'm Willy Wonka. You're fired. You're cancelled. Get out. Oh, no, but I'm, I'm Charlie Bucket. You're cancelled. You're not. I'd go as a big cancellation. I'd go as a bottle of Tipex. No, I won't. That's what I go for World Book Day 2023. And just, I have, there's nothing left. Just blank pages. Anyway, you know what I'm doing. I'm only needling, as I say. Only having a laugh. A laugh, he says. Well, we'll tell you who was not having a laugh. His guest, Liz Nugent. Her new book is called Strange Sally Diamond. What can we tell you about it? Transpires not a lot from the get-go twists. It does sound very intriguing, though. But they did get into cancel culture and reading and publishing today. Did you actually give your book to Sensitivity Reader? I did. More than one? You said, you said plural. Yeah, uh, I think four or five. Yeah, um, I, just... Just to make sure, because there are issues and, um, you know, so there was a, a black sensitivity reader, lesbian sensitivity reader, a psychiatrist, because I didn't want to offend all psychiatrists, yeah. um, a Maori sensitivity reader, the part of the book moves to New Zealand. Um, I can't remember the others. Yeah, so, just... you know, it was just... It, and I think, I know you were talking about cancel culture and all that, but I think um, sensitivity reading kind of gets a bad press. It's I say it more like responsible research. You know, you just want to write a book in such a way that it is not going to offend any of your readers. I, I, do you know what? You I know? understand that. I'm not I'm yeah. not going to have a go at, at sensitivity readers, yeah. to be honest with you, because the way you're describing it, it, makes, it does make sense. But let me ask you a couple of things on that. One yeah. is... Did did you find when they came back that it 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 upset you in terms of editorial of your book, or did you find you yourself in constant agreement with the suggestions made? Pretty much constant agreement. Great. Like they pointed out things that I was blind to, my unconscious bias. You know what I mean? And there was only actually one okay. thing. There was only one small part of one scene that I was asked to change. That's it. Yeah, and that was no part. That was like really easy to change, and so. Yeah, it, it wasn't a problem. I, I actually had kind of passed the test before they <laughs> before so they got their hands in the book. But Ryan, to an extent, was holding firm on this one. The sensitivity readers, I think the problem for some people, and I probably count myself yeah. among them, is when they start dipping into previously published books and yeah. with, with wholesale changes. That's what would bother me about the Dal thing. I can take a word here and, and an offensive point there, but when they're going and putting paragraphs and, and changes like that, and to me, that's not the, the author's book anymore. I guess so. I guess so. Um, I reread To Kill a Mockingbird just recently, like in the past couple of weeks, and I did think, oh my God, I don't think I'd like my black friends to read this book. Yeah. Because there, there are some lines in it and there are some generalisations made, even by Atticus, who's the hero and the, the most the most non-racist character in the book. Um, uh, yeah, there are some things that I would just be 
uncomfortable with with 2023 eyes. Yeah, yeah totally you know different. I mean? so much but at the same that. time, it's a book of its time. It's set in the late 30s, I think, just before. Yeah, it's set in the late 30s. So it was of its time and I'm not suggesting it be rewritten or anything like that. But just, you know, I think... But I think it's maybe it's like those TV yeah. programs now. Shouldn't some books should have a sticker to say, "By the way, if you're sensitive to the following, this book there's like a health warning." Oh, I wouldn't like that now because there might be there'd be no room for the title of my book. If you, Strange if Sally you. Diamond. It'd just be called <laughs> Sally, offensive to jewelers and odd people. So you got to watch that. Oh, it's an interesting discussion, all right. Liz Nugent with Ryan. Meanwhile, over on Cayley House, The Lost Art of Whistling and Dr. Robert Harvey from DCU. And would Kieran Hanrahan put you on the spot? He absolutely would. You're an exponent yourself. Would you give us a few bars maybe of a tune? Is that, is that fair? I know you hadn't prepared for this though, but what do you think? Just maybe a couple of, maybe 16 or 32 bars. Absolutely. Would you give me a chance to wet my whistle though first? Okay, I'll let you do that. Yeah, okay. I swallowed the water and whistled the tune. Lovely. And from Gailey House to Albert Square. I've been busting to tell people for ages because it's just so exciting. That's Alison Spittle. And yeah, it was exciting. She'd just gotten a job in EastEnders. Her name is Deborah. And right. that's like, the thing is, being now, I would call, uh, being a soap star now, Ray, I don't know how much I'm allowed to say. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? It's very coveted in secrecy. I was a big fan of EastEnders, like, um, you know, because like half my family are English and yes. Irish, and it's the only thing that they have in common okay. is actually watching EastEnders. <laughs> so deliver so the lines, deliver, deliver, the, tell me now that you're on EastEnders. Go on, tell me, tell me. You know, as if we're, you know, it's a sort you of, a, go, like, it's a hush secret sort well, of thing. Well, I do it. Yeah, go on. I do it in, a, in, a, in an accent. Okay. Uh, and that, so my accent is me impersonating my dad because he's English. So okay, okay. <clears throat> right? I'm on EastEnders. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to tell me? <laughs> no. I mean, that's perfect, right? I mean, it's only a small part, but I'm delighted to be. I was amazing being there. Yeah. Like, it was great. You get driven around in a golf buggy to hair and makeup. I was driven there, and the lady read the script. And she said, Oh, you're supposed to wear no makeup. So she just sat me in the chair and patted me <laughs> on the shoulder. And I got picked up again, driven around. You get to see Albert Square, Queen Vic, wow. everything. Wow. And they were so nice to let me take pictures. And I was like, It was in Disneyland. Super exciting, yeah. you know, because it's, it's a big brilliant. part of my childhood. That's brilliant. Yeah, but, and listen, uh, yeah, because, so you're on it, because you're on it, Alison yeah. Spittle, I can tell you this, for the first time in a long time, tonight, <laughs> I will watch EastEnders. <laughs> Get out of my pocket!
pub, right? Get out of my pub. <laughs> oh, that is brilliant. Back in a bit. Welcome back. This week, two very different programmes, but both featuring remarkable women, with mothering as the binding thread. On Saturday with Colm O'Mungon, Debbie Deegan of the charity To Russia With Love and an insight into life on the front line for young Russian soldiers, some of whom she knew as children. We would have had calls and FaceTime calls and they would reach out to us all the time through their lives for everything, whether they're having a birthday party, a wedding or whether they're on the front line. They would be quite used to reaching out to us, um, whatever's going on in their life, whether it's to say... You know, I love you and I, I, I respect my Irish family and I'm, you know, I'm always going to try and be kind and respect people because that's what we would have taught them. Um, and so if any of that rubbed off on them, I would only hope that maybe they made, I don't know, kinder soldiers or more respectful people, human beings. But um, yes, we've lost two and as I say, we have one at the moment that is missing. And many people in this country, you know, historically, who would have been through the industrial schools Um, entered army life it was a structured life and perhaps an institutionalised setting was something that suited them living in barracks and the like did the same kind of throughput occur in Russia with people going from orphanages to the military yeah exactly the same I think there was some statistic about something like 97% of orphan boys ended up either back in prison or in the army or those type of institutions. Um, and now we tried to crack that with our boys because we felt an awful lot of them had much more to offer. Um, whereas the normal orphan would have been kind of trundled through and directed towards the army. And then, of course, orphans make great soldiers because when they go missing, nobody notices, really. In general, there's nobody screaming about them. There's no mammies with placards shouting about them. Um, so they probably make good fodder. And Colm asked her if they told her what motivated them to fight. They would definitely be of the mindset that they're trying to save us from... Nazi um, Nazis and they would be telling me that they're going to save us from Nazis and that that's why they're fighting for us and that they would hope that they can do that for us and they truly truly believe that And given your level of emotional involvement with these boys Debbie when you hear that and you hear that they're risking their lives or as you've just said dying for this cause does that make it worse? Um, it doesn't make it any worse uh, for me what cause they're dying for. I um, I just, I can only say to them to stay safe. That's all I can say. Like, like I won't say we're like a mother figure to them, but like, what does a what does a mammy say to them to their children in a situation like that? I'm not going to start lecturing them on history, or I'm not going to start lecturing them on what propaganda looks like or doesn't look like. It's not my job in life to do that with them. I can just say to them. Just to be careful, um, like they're not lieutenants and captains, my lot, you know what I mean? They would be the frontliners, I suppose, or the fodder, I guess, you know? I suppose if you've got a rich daddy, uh, you're going to be the one that's sitting in the office polishing the phone lines or whatever it is you do, but you're not going to be the one out on the field, I don't think. Yeah, and one lad, you know, was was wounded more than once and, and still went back to the front or was sent back to the front? He was, he was, yes, he was shot twice and um, I had a FaceTime call and he showed me his wounds. He was in hospital actually when he phoned me to tell me how much he loved the Irish and to pass on his his last words in case he didn't come back a third time. Um, just to say that they were the happiest days of his life when he was a child and he wanted me to pass that on. 
That is quite devastating. Debbie Deegan, as heard on Saturday with Colm Mongon. Well worth a listen back. And now to Tuesday's live line, which was dominated by two voices, both in their own way, powerful and very moving. It started when Verena phoned in to talk about the benefits her daughter Ashling was receiving from cannabis oil. Ashling is just 17. Um, how did cannabis oil come, come into your life? Um, well, we heard of it through um, um, a kind of an unofficial support group um, that mm. we have. Um, nothing mm. bad has happened to anybody from trying it. It gives a lot of people peace, relief from pain. We can misuse anything. But she's exceptionally wise, I suppose, in mm-hmm. how she needs to look after herself and mind herself. And there's nothing that she's had that she's misused, including her prescription drugs, which were yeah. the Oxy drugs, the Oxy Norm and the okay. Oxy Cotton. If people knew how many we had in the house at that, at that time, you know, they'd have been, they'd have been a wanted mm-hmm. drug on the, on the street. So, and, and Verena, what, what is Ashling's condition that demands such... Uh, strong medication on the four you mentioned, OxyContin. And, uh, so, uh, Ashling was 15 when she first started getting sick um, and the signs were, you know, a paleness, a weakness, weight loss. We were told it was a virus and okay. it would take some time for her to recover from it. We we took that and we said, okay, because you don't think it's ever anything more serious. Now, when we look at childhood cancer symptoms, we can see them all, but you just never think cancer. And unfortunately, at the time, she was trying her best to do what her peers do, mainly because she didn't want to look like a drama queen. Or, you know, it was in her mind, it was just a virus. And she was saying, God, don't be so ridiculous. Get up and get active and yeah. do what you need to do. But she was exhausted. Um, and it wasn't until she was 16 through A&E that uh, she got a chest X-ray and there was an eight centimeter tumor in her right lung and wrapping herself around her heart and everything and just, yeah, our world's turned upside down from there. Ashling was diagnosed with a rare sarcoma cancer and her prognosis is not good. In Verena's words, it is treatment until progression. She can have good days and bad days. <clears throat> I think she reserves energy for the good days. She enjoys them, she gives them her all and then mm. she could be in bed for two days after that. Um, and it's those days that nobody sees. She, if she goes out and about, people say, "Jesus, she's doing brilliant." You know, she's fantastic. Mm. And, but it's, it's that might be two days out of a week that she can that she can do that. And as it happened, Ashling was beside her mother, so she took the phone. Here he goes. Okay. Here's Joe. Hello. Hi, Ashling. Joe here. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? Um, I'm I'm doing okay for. What I'm going through, I like to answer that question all the time with, "Oh, great!" Like, and yeah. I, I don't like saying, "Like, I'm not good." Yeah. Um, and the, the cannabis oil, what, what difference do you think it makes, Ashley? It's like the difference that I know it makes mm-hmm. is that I feel like my old self again because. It's like a recipe for disaster, all the fear and anxiety and okay. sadness. And like, I, I grieve the person who I was before my diagnosis. I was so naive and I, I do miss it and I can mm. never, I can never get that back again. So when I do 
have some cannabis oil, it gives me the, it makes me feel like I'm in my own skin again. Mm. When I don't have it and I'm just waking up in the morning, I yeah. don't want to deal with anything. Yeah. If one little thing happens, I'll just, I'll start to break down because it's all too much. I usually don't have the motivation to get up out of bed to do regular things like shower. And when I take the cannabis oil, I write down in my weekly planner, this is what I'm going to do. And I start making my life something worth living. And it was her own attitude to her life and her illness that was incredibly wise. As she said herself, wiser than any 17-year-old should be. And when you say, Ashling, that what, when you your former self, which you, you were diagnosed with cancer when you were, what, 15, uh, you were naive. Well, what do you mean by that? Um, Like, I mean, just you kind of live life thinking I'm going to die one age uh, or one day at a very old age. Yeah. And I like, it's like you only live once. You have to live life to the fullest. But now it's it's very hard to see live life to the fullest because it's literally like the Grim Reaper is going like, hey, don't forget I'm here. Hello. Like, n- nobody like mm. wants to hear how they could like die one day. Um, like, so it's, it's scary to have that option yeah. facing me always. And it's scary at such a young age. It, it's terrifying. Like, I... Like, I I do have this new view on the world and I appreciate some things more. But also, like, I'm too aware, I think, at 17. Mm-hmm. Like, no 17-year-old should have to face death this early in life. Like, I feel like I'm not on the same level as my peers. In what way? Like, they're thinking about their leaving cert and college yeah. and <gasps> I'm thinking about... What country can I go to next to get options to keep me alive? But Ashling is also a young woman with hopes of perhaps having her own family someday. Things she loves, hanging out with her sister, they do face masks, head to pennies and sometimes, yes, her sister does nick her clothes. But Joe also wanted to know the kinds of things that got on her nerves. What do you dislike people saying? What annoys you? Um, if anything, if pro- probably something I've said to you. But, uh, uh, no, it's the, I think the thing that I hate the most about what people say is, mm. oh no, you've got enough to be dealing with. I won't, I won't tell you that. Or okay. you, like, you, like, it's, they, they look at me and they only see the cancer. Okay. So you want medics, everyone, well, am I right in, in, uh, surmising from what you said that you want medics and everyone has to tell you the truth as they know it oh yeah 100% even though the truth might contain words like incurable yeah it's scary but it's it's life and you've still got to find ways to use that like in a positive form mm-hmm. and have you have you heard the word incurable yeah, I have. I'm so sorry to hear that. And Joe Duffy was more than happy to step back and let Ashling take the mic. 
Is there anything you were saying to yourself, if I don't say this on radio now, I'll be annoyed to other young people or to older people or to doctors? Um, the, the one thing that I'm so adamant on getting out there is just like early diagnosis is so important for anything. Yeah. Like if you if you feel like you're not okay and there's something going on with you that's not really explainable, like definitely go like yeah. go and get it checked and don't stop shouting until you get your yeah. answer. The very remarkable Ashling with Joe. But when they came back after a break, Joe spoke again to Mammy Verena. And it might be this next bit that will floor you entirely. I know I'm biased, but isn't she absolutely just so endearingly beautiful? Keep talking, Verena. You won't say enough. No, she's just... I couldn't be more proud of both my girls. I really couldn't. They're amazing humans and they make being a mum the easiest thing in the world. Despite cancer coming into our home it's it's honestly a joy and an ease to be their mother yeah. you know because pain is inevitable in yeah. this life pain for everyone okay. it, whether whether people have cancer or not whether they were just born to a family who didn't know how to show love like everyone goes through trauma the pain is inevitable and through the pain there are lessons it'll teach us about ourselves it'll help us to grow it'll help us to become stronger mm. and that that's all that that's what life is it's it's not as why are we here as we think it's it's much simpler it's just be kind be true to your soul and live the best life you can while you have it from lifeline well that is it from this week's playback thank you for listening talk to you next week Blackbird singing in the dead of night Take these broken wings and learn to fly on your life. You're only waiting for this moment to rise.